Our sermon this morning comes from Luke chapter 8, excuse me, Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. You will find that on page 864 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you do not have a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to just take that Bible that you find in the Pew Rack as our gift to you today. And I do encourage you once again to open the scripture this morning. We're going to be tackling close to 20 verses, and we will, as our custom, is to just work through verse by verse. And it'll be helpful for you, I think, to stay engaged with what's happening as we continually refer back to the Word of God. And so I'm excited to be here with you this morning. This passage has deeply touched my life uh, before and again in my preparation, and um, it's my great honor to bring it to you today. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Please hear now the Word of God. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterwards, he went through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Our Father, we're thankful now for this time to consider your word. We ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would come and enliven our hearts. You would open us up to what you have us to learn about you, about the gospel, about forgiveness, that you might work powerfully in our lives, that you indeed might transform us through your living and abiding word. So come now and work in us, please. Help this not just to be another Sunday morning, another routine, another duty, but cause us even now to draw close to you by faith in delight, in overwhelmingness of the forgiveness in which we have received. Do this work even now for your glory and for our great gain, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Pastor Timothy Keller came across an interview in which non-Christians were asked why they're not Christians. It seems like a a fascinating um, uh, question to me. I think it's a great idea. And and a couple of responses that stuck out to me. The first uh, non-Christian said he wasn't a Christian by saying, quote, the problem I have with Christianity is that people focus so much on Jesus rather than on the message or example he set. By focusing on Jesus, I think it excludes other religions and other people from having a relationship with God, and that really bothers me. See, people can't separate Jesus' message from the messenger, but I do. 
Another responded similarly. The way I perceive Christianity is not centered on Christ, the person, but on God and the path that Christ outlined for us. I have a lot of trouble with the interpretation that says if you don't worship Christ, you're not going to heaven. That is too exclusionary. If you live the way he showed, I think that's the way you can have a relationship with God. Now, I think this is uh, very germane to the culture in which we live in. I think many people would, would hear these, these statements and say, yeah, I, I think I agree with that. That makes a lot of sense to me. You know, the message is important. What Christ came to show us was important. Uh, uh, not so much the messenger. It's what he came to teach us. And so it's not important so much whether you worship Jesus, though, though you can if you like. But what's important is that you, you follow his example, that you learn what he taught. And it's out of the heart, I think, that they don't want to exclude other people, certainly not exclude good people who don't happen to worship Jesus. And so they have come up with this system. In other words, it doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus. What matters is that you follow his example. What matters is you are a good person. Well, it's interesting because we, I mentioned that we come to this story and it seems to me that Jesus says the exact opposite. He he seems to be arguing that it doesn't matter if you're a good person, ultimately. All that matters is that you encounter him, that you believe in him. So the world will say, just be good. It doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus. Jesus seems to be implying it really doesn't matter if you're good. You just need to believe in me. And if you believe in me, I will give you power. I will transform you. I will equip you in your life. So I wonder if there may be some here today, of course, that would say, you know, I I think Jesus' message is very good. I think he's a good person and I, I want to follow his example, but I don't know that I have to necessarily believe in him or to worship him. Or maybe certainly you have a, a friend who believes that, don't you? Or a spouse or a child. I think this passage can be very helpful for you today. I, I hope that it will equip you to be able to speak to others about this as we really see both points of view in this passage. You have one individual who says, you know, I'm interested in Jesus, but I really don't care about him as a person. I'm interested in his way of life. We might call that Simon's religion. And then you have another who has, if you will, failed in every way and yet is in love with Jesus. We might call that this woman's religion. And so I'd like to consider both of their approaches to Jesus with you this morning. But before we do, just kind of get the story. Luke sets it up beautifully for us, as we see in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Now, this Pharisees will learn in a moment his name's Simon. He is a very religious man, a very morally upright man. He would have kept the law. He would have fasted. He would have tithed. He would have um, prayed three times a day. He would be at the synagogue often. And he invites Jesus over for dinner, which is unusual because though Jesus has not encountered the Pharisees all that much and at this point in his ministry, there have been some encounters and they have not gone very well. And so this man invites Jesus over for dinner. We're not sure why. Perhaps he's curious about Jesus, wants to learn more about him. But we don't, we're, not, we're not exactly sure. But we do know that Jesus said, okay, I'll go. Showing us that Jesus is willing to eat with anyone that invites him. Not just the tax collectors and sinners, but the religious elite as well. And, and there he throws a dinner party for him. Now, it's helpful to understand this passage to know a little bit about the dinner parties in which they would do. They would most likely be in an inner courtyard and a wealthy man's house. And there will be a table, not 30 inches high like your table is, but low to the ground. And surrounding the table would not be chairs, but pillows. And in order to eat this meal, you would actually lie down and, and kind of lean on your left arm with your feet extended away from the table, and you would eat with your right hand. This is important for us, as we'll see in a moment what's about to take place. And so they're gathered around this meal, and these would be, of course, these special meals, and dignitaries would be invited. And, and in fact, we have, we've learned from uh, ancient literature that at these special meals, they would leave the doors open. And that people would come in off the streets and not join them for the meal, but would kind of stand by the wall or sit by the wall and just kind of listen to the conversation of these important people. And so certainly there must have been guests there, uninvited guests sitting and listening. But one guest in particular draws everyone's attention. As you see, verse 37 begins, and behold, someone is there that ought not to be there. Who is it? A woman of the city. Now that doesn't mean she's urban, right? It means she has sin in her life, as Luke immediately tells us, doesn't he? Who was a sinner. In fact, we'll hear three times in this story about this woman's sin. We'll never learn her name, but we'll learn a great deal about her and about the way she lived her life. She was a sinner. 
And when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask to anoint him. Anoint him. And so here's this, this woman who is, who is a notori- not just a sinner, but a notorious sinner. Everybody knows this woman. Everybody's well aware of her. In fact, most commentaries, ancient and modern, conclude that she is a prostitute. And so here a prostitute walks into this meal, and you can imagine what that must have been like as elbows were raised, uh, uh, excuse me, eyebrows were raised, and elbows nudged each other. Certainly people would be whispering or there would be muffled laughter over coarse jokes on her behalf. Right? It's common for guests to show up, but no one expected her. A sinful woman walks into a room, not just completely full of men, but holy men who know her. She undoubtedly is ashamed, nervous. I trust her eyes were cast down upon the ground as she walked in. Luke tells us why she's there, because she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. According to verse 37, she's come to anoint Jesus. And she's doing so out of gratitude. Though it's not reported, it's heavily implied in this passage, and we'll see this more clearly as we work through it, that she has had some previous encounter with Jesus. And there she has found uh, what her heart has been looking for through Christ. She has found the grace in which he has has offered her. And and out of that gratitude to the Lord, she has come to him. She heard that he was at this man's house. And she wants to anoint him with a very expensive jar of perfume. But unfortunately for her, it did not go as planned. I trust she intended to slip in and slip out, pouring the perfume upon his, his feet. But as this notorious sinner bends over her Lord's feet, and the whispers give way to silence. Everyone's eyes now fall upon her. Everything goes wrong, as you see in verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping. I trust she told herself not to cry. I'm going to keep it together. But as she approaches the Lord, the tears overcome her. And by the way, she's just not crying. She's, she's, she's weeping. She's not whim, uh, whimpering. She's weeping, Luke tells us. In fact, so much, you see that there in verse 38, that she began to wet his feet with her tears. They're streaking across her face, falling down upon the Lord's feet. Luther, in commentating on this passage, would call it heart water. The tears do not come from her eyes, he says, but from her heart as she uh, responds to the Lord. This woman who lived in intense guilt. It's all gone. Under the crushing burden of sin, it has all been washed away. She is overwhelmed by the grace of God. In fact, it is interesting that if you lay up the the Gospels in chronological order, and many have noted this throughout the centuries, that the, the passage that most likely immediately precedes this one is Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And many have speculated throughout the ages that it's perhaps because of this very invitation, this woman who indeed was weary and heavy laden, heard the call of Christ and came to him and found her rest with him. She owes her salvation to that invitation. And now she's at his feet, just a mess. Her tears running down her face, her snot coming out of her nose, her quivering in her voice, her makeup all smeared, right? In fact, there's enough fluid coming from her face to wash this man's feet. She is in this, this um, self-forgetful mess. In fact, you notice what else she does, according to verse 38. After she's wetting Jesus' hair, she recognizes she has no towel to dry them. So what does she do? She wa- wipes his feet with the hair of her head. Now, this would be scandalous. A woman would never take down her hair in public in this culture. In fact, the rabbis at this time said, if a wife takes down her hair in public, it is grounds for divorce. She has never done this before. In fact, most likely these men have never seen such an act of intimacy in public before. But she didn't seem to care, did she? She had forgotten herself at the presence of her Lord as she anoints his feet, according to verse 38, anointing them with oil, right? This great sacrifice. This most likely would be the most precious thing that she owns. She's now pouring it on the feet of her Lord. And as that aroma fills the courtyard, what does she do? She begins to kiss those feet. And and not just once. The tense tells us over and over and over again this astonishing display of affection there in the presence of a room of holy men. You can imagine, I think, that the dinner shuts down at this point, right? Conversations abruptly end, food is put down. Of course, no one's addressing her. No one's saying anything amidst her sobs and her sniffles of this woman in love with this man. But everyone's thinking, including Simon. So you note verse 39, 
When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Right? You see what Simon's thinking. You're supposed to live a good life, is what he thinks. Right? And, and, and she, if she's going to represent for us the one who has not lived a good life, once again, the second time we hear that she's a sinner, but she believes in Jesus, Simon's going to represent for us the good man, right? The morally upright man who rejects faith in Jesus. And, and, and obviously rejecting her, you could hear his disdain for her, right? If he only knew who she was, how can he even let her touch her, t- touch him? How can he even allow this to happen? He certainly must not be a prophet. That's repulsive, isn't it? This man's attitude. His righteousness would be, is the kind that would have preferred Jesus kick her back to the streets. And it turns us off. We find it repulsive. And yet I think if we're probably honest, we also find it familiar. I imagine there's very few amongst us in this room that have not judged someone in our heart this week. Have not looked down upon someone as if we were moral perfection. As if God could not say the same thing about us and much more. I think there's a little bit of Simon in every one of us. And I think this passage helps us to recognize that. It calls us into account. And Jesus is is being accused here. And Simon says he's clearly not a prophet. Well, he's going to find out, Simon will, uh, that Jesus is not only a prophet... Um, he's, he's well aware of what she, who she is. In fact, he's also well aware of Simon's thoughts, as you see in verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. Right, so you could kind of tell they're about to have a blunt conversation, aren't they? This is kind of like your boss coming in, you know, come on in and have a seat, we need to talk, Right. Or, or uh, maybe your father saying, you know, uh, you need to, you know, I need to speak to you. Or your wife maybe saying, hey, uh, honey, we need to talk. Which means you're going to listen, by the way. Um, but uh, it, it, well, let's, let's get back to the text here. Um, and so he wants to flesh something out with him. And amazingly and beautifully, what he's going to flesh out is going to be this beautiful invitation for Simon. If he'd only accept it, he's going to flesh out the gospel. He's going to flesh out for them and for us even today, thousands of years later. What is the gospel? And more precisely, how does it transform us? What does the gospel do in us if we receive it? And so he begins by discussing our debt. All that, by the way, was introduction. So now we're on to point number one, our debt. You consider this, and he says, it tells a parable, verse 41. A certain money letter had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So, so you have two people in debt. The lender is God. He is the one to whom the debt is owed. And you have two debtors who represent really two different levels of sinner. Now clearly in this story, the woman is the 500 denarii debtor, right? And Simon's the 50 denarii debtor, right? He is outwardly, if you will, 10 times better than this woman. So in some sense, Jesus is saying to him, Simon, give yourself some credit. You are a much better man than she is. You are a much more righteous man. You have sinned far less than she has. So, so his debt is much smaller, but that's not really the point, is it? The point is that they both are in debt. In fact, more than that, they both cannot repay. As you note, verse 42, when they could not pay. So it's not like the moralist, the religious man is okay and the prostitute is in debt. They're both in debt and they both cannot pay. You see, what Jesus is teaching us here and elsewhere throughout Scripture is that our sin makes us indebted to God. It makes us guilty before Him. And and some people will want to come and say to Him, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm I'm a good person. You know, I haven't done that many bad things. And what Jesus is teaching us, it doesn't really matter if your sin is great or your sin is small. Regardless of who you are, your sin is so large that you cannot repay it. And if you cannot repay it, it doesn't matter how much it is, right? If you owe $10 million or you owe $10,000 and you cannot repay either debt, you're still going to lose your business, right? You're still in this day going to end up in debtor's prison. It doesn't matter how big the debt is. It matters that you cannot repay it. And so Jesus is teaching us here is that no matter how good or bad you think you are, every single one of us is in debt and no one can pay it off. It doesn't matter that she's ten times worse. You see, Simon religion says, you know, I want to separate the message from the messenger. And in doing so, the premise is always, I'm okay. I'm good. 
And yes, please, Jesus, help me understand life. Give me some instruction. Give me some example so I can save myself. But Jesus is confronting that. He's saying you cannot save yourself. You cannot pay off your debt. You do realize, my friends here, you are in debt to God. Every one of us. In fact, our debt is great. I mean, can you imagine if you were, God were to send you like a a credit card bill every month, right? And every month you get in your mail, your debt to God. Uh, Just maybe a list of your sins. You didn't pray, you didn't serve, you didn't care, you didn't love. You were greedy, angry. Every sin of commission, every sin of omission, every thought, word, and deed. That would be a big envelope for me. What if, what if he sent us? What if we had an accounting of all that we owe him? It would be unimaginable. You are in debt to God. I am in debt to God. Every one of us is in debt to God. And that debt, no matter how large or small, is unpayable. But of course, that's not where Jesus ends the story. He goes on to speak about the forgiveness of debt, as we see, secondly, our forgiveness. Read on in verse 42. When they could not pay, he counseled the debt of both. So in this story, he forgives both debtors. And of course, this is what Jesus has come to do. He has come to pay our debt. He has come to forgive our debt, to to take it away. In fact, he's already, and I'll, I'll prove this to you in a moment, he's already paid her debt. Her debt has already been washed away. In fact, up to this point, he's he, for most of the story, he's only talking to Simon. But notice in verse 44, finally he addresses this woman at his feet. And I trust with a smile on his face and love in his eyes, he says to her in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. He's paid her debt. And he does so knowing the full extent of it. Look in verse 47. What Jesus says about her. Therefore I tell you her sins, which are, what? Many. Her sins are many. And yet your sins are forgiven. Every demeaning act, every immoral indecency that she committed have been totally cleansed from her record. Her sins are forgiven. She who sold her body for money and betrayed the image of God within her has heard from God himself. Your sins are forgiven. Everyone else wants to kick her back to the streets. Jesus comes to pay her debt. He comes to counsel it. He comes to forgive her sin. And you need to understand this, you who come here today hurting. You who come today on the shame of sin and the pain of transgression in your life. When everyone else might turn their back upon you, Jesus will receive you as you are. He does not say to her, listen lady, go fix your life and then we'll have a conversation. He doesn't say, go take care of all your, your, your sin and your transgressions and then I will receive you. No, he says to her and to all who feel, who feel the pain of sin in their life, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden under the burden of your own sin and I will give you rest. He's come to give rest. I wonder, maybe there are some here that you don't even think you should be here today. You certainly don't think you should be praying. Maybe, maybe when Pastor Joss mentioned we'll be taking the Lord's Supper tomorrow, you, you thought in your heart, oh, I can't take the Lord's Supper with how I'm living. I want you to understand there is forgiveness available for you right now. It is not a matter of cleaning up your life. It has never been a matter of cleaning up your life. It has always been a matter of crying out to Jesus for forgiveness. And if you do, he will forgive you. Come to the feet of Jesus. Find grace there. Find forgiveness there. And you will also find transformation there. You see, this beautiful gospel, our debt is forgiven by Christ, leads to our transformation. You clearly see it in this woman's life. In fact, there are many beauties here worth our consideration, and we'll try to get through them. But I, I just, the first one I think is the most important that the fact that clearly what Christ has done in her life has caused her to love Jesus. And that's the whole point of, of this story, right? And you look in verse 42, and when Jesus says they couldn't repay any counsel, they did them both. Now, here's the question that Jesus is driving home this is what he's driving towards. Now, which of them will love him more? Right? And, and, and the answer is obvious, and Simon recognizes that. He almost seems 
cautious, doesn't he? Like he's in a trap, but he, he knows the answer. Simon answered, verse 43, the one, I suppose, for whom he counseled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Right? You're, you're right. So Jesus is after love and he counsels debt in order to get our love. And then he goes on in this powerful contrast between this man's way of living and this woman's way of living. Look in verse 44. And then he turned, then turning toward the woman, he said to, said to Simon, I find that interesting. She's at his feet and he's looking at her, but he's still speaking to Simon at this point. Do you see this woman? Which of course he did. Everyone saw this woman. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. You see, Simon's done nothing for Jesus, not even the customary hospitality of that day. If you were to invite a guest in, you would always put a basin of water out for them to dip their feet. You'd always greet them with a kiss upon the cheek. And you'd always place, especially if they're for dinner, a a drop or two of olive oil upon their head to freshen your weary guest. Simon does none of it. We're wondering, is it calculated contempt against Jesus? Maybe he realizes his other Pharisee buddies are there, so he doesn't want to look like he's buddying up to Jesus. I don't know, but everybody knows that Simon is not doing what even the culture says is the polite thing to do. And in contrast to what Simon did not do, this woman did everything she could for Jesus. In fact, she not only substituted for Simon's lack, she did so with extravagance. For he who brought no water washes his feet with tears. He who offered no towel dries them with her hair. He who offered no kiss upon the cheek, she repeatedly kisses his feet. He who would not anoint his head with oil, with this inexpensive olive oil, but she is willing to anoint his feet with costly perfume. It is this spontaneous, unguarded, lavish display of love. And Jesus recognizes it and says two things about it. The first thing you notice is he's praising her, isn't he? I just want to note that for a moment, that he praises this woman, which is rare. You read the Gospels and you don't see Jesus walking around saying, you know, you guys are the best, right? I'm so happy that you all are with me. Right? He has a lot of rebuke for a lot of people. It is on a rare occasion that someone, Jesus looks at someone and begins to praise them for what is going on in their heart as it's seen in their actions. But the second thing he's doing is he's inviting Simon, isn't he? He's in some sense, as he draws this contrast, he's saying to Simon, why aren't you weeping? Why aren't you kissing me? Why aren't you embracing me? And Simon must be thinking, oh, what? You, you want me to, to cry and to hug you? And Jesus' answer is, yes. Yes. I want your love. Now, th- this is a little harder for guys to get into, I understand. Um, but this is crisis after our hearts. He wants us to love him. In fact, you you notice Jesus not only shows us the difference between these two people, he tells us why they're different. Look in verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. I want you to note, by the way, that Jesus does not minimize her sin, does not excuse her sin. In fact, he wants to, like the others, identify it. He, in fact, he goes even farther than everyone else. He actually says her sins are many. He doesn't neglect her sin. He doesn't shift the blame of her sin. He doesn't say she has an alternative lifestyle. He doesn't look at Simon and says, listen, buddy, you've had all the privileges in your life. She was born in poverty. She's doing the best she can. So why don't you lay off her, right? He doesn't do any of that. In fact, Jesus judges her. He judges her. Her sins, which are many, he says. There was no debate in this. She is the the greater debtor. And it's all been what? Forgiven. It's forgiven. Because she's been forgiven much, she loves me much. Now we have to be careful here, especially with verse 47. Because you might be inclined to think that what Jesus is saying is that because she's loving... She's therefore forgiven. 
You might be inclined to think that her love is the cause of the forgiveness, right? You could read verse 47 that way. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. And you might read that for as some causal um, uh, action. So she loved and therefore I come and forgive her. This is why you can't take the Bible out of context. Because remember the whole parable. What comes first, forgiveness or love? It is the forgiveness, right? The man forgave the debt. And then what happens? Well, they love as a response to it. And so we can read verse 47 there, um, not, not uh, as it is causal reality, for she loved much. We might read it, seeing that she loved much would be another way to read that. So she has been, she ha- her sins are many, which sins are, which are many are forgiven. And we can see that she's been forgiven because she has loved much. This is why almost every commentator believes she has some previous encounter with Jesus where she has received that forgiveness and now she has come to love him. And then in verse 48, when he announces your sins are forgiven, it is, of course, for her a wonderful assurance, especially in light of all these holy men, that I have forgiven all of her sins, though her sins were as scarlet. They have been made white as snow. And she knows this joy of forgiveness, this irresistible love that comes from it to the one who gave it. She loves him. And my brothers and sisters, if you know the gospel at all, you can relate to what's going on inside her, can't you? You feel that somewhere in you, maybe right on the top, but somewhere in your heart, there is a drawing towards Jesus, a love for Jesus. You see, Simon religion, you don't know your sin, and therefore you don't care about forgiveness. And if you don't care about forgiveness, there is no passion. There is no transformation. But that's exactly what Jesus is after. He is after our love. That's the point of this story. The point of the story is why do some people love Jesus and others don't? And it's clear here that... It, we love him because we've been forgiven much. In fact, please understand this. The, 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 your, her love is not the, simply the result of forgiveness. Her love is the purpose of forgiveness. You get that? That her love is not only the result of the forgiveness in which she has received, it is the very purpose for which Christ has forgiven her. He is after her love. He is after your love. It is the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants it. He deserves it. He is after it. And he will forgive you your sin to get it. This is why he has forgiven her. But if you separate the message from the messenger, you miss the whole point. He's come to bring out love for himself. The purpose of forgiveness is not simply that you get to live forever. It is to create in your heart a love for God. So I wonder, who who do you relate to in this story? Which one of these characters describes your relationship with Jesus? This woman, of course, believes she's hopeless without Jesus. And therefore she rejoices in the forgiveness in which she has received. That rejoicing leads to love for him. Do you love him? Do you love Jesus? Simon... So when to give Jesus the minimum, isn't he? Many people are like Simon, I think. I'll give him my Sunday mornings. He gets a couple hours. You know, I'll give him a little bit of duty. But there's no letting your hair down. There's no weeping. There's no passion. There's no love. I imagine there's many here who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet the love for God has grown dim. The fire in your heart has died down. Some of you feel that, don't you? And you want that fire back. You want that longing back. You want that awakening that our church has been talking about. How is it that you receive it? Well, your love will be cold as long as you consider the greatness of your debt to be small. As long as you neglect the majesty of the forgiveness in which he has given you. I think Charles Spurgeon captured this beautifully. This man who for some time was outwardly Bible-reading, church-going son of a pastor until the Holy Spirit convicted him of his pride, he would write, Too many think lightly of sin and therefore lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned, with a rope around his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. 
You see, what happens if we try to present our sins as small, which much of Western Christianity is moving towards, then, then our forgiveness becomes small. Then love dries up and there is no transformation. It all disappears. If you, if you want to stoke your heart for God, you need to consider repeatedly the greatness of your debt and the majesty of the forgiveness which you have therefore received. In fact, I find it interesting. The longer I'm a Christian, the more aware of how sinful I am. Do you realize that? You would think it would be the opposite. The longer you're a Christian, the better person you become. And I hope that's true, but the more aware I become of sin. But that doesn't drive me from God. That drives me to God. And when I come to God, even more aware of the greatness of my rejection and rebellion of Him, I am even more floored by the majesty and wonder of the forgiveness in which He has lavished upon me. That will create love in our hearts for Jesus. You see, the Simon religion says, I'm, I'm not really interested in worshiping Jesus. I just want, I appreciate his example. And when, and when you follow that, you create a religion without tears. You create a religion without passion. You create a religion without transformation. You have an impersonal religion that has no power in your life. It certainly won't create a love for God in you. But that's not all that it creates. It creates a love for others. How are you going to find the power to love others, which you at one time did not have? I'll tell you, your ability to love other people depends upon how deeply you see your sin and how much you appreciate your forgiveness. Because how else do you love those who sin against you? You love those who sin against you when you recognize that you are full of sin. And you being full of sin will therefore think, how can I hold this against them? You see, awareness of sin leads to humility and humility always leads to love. But you don't stop there, right? Because you're not only full of sin, you are fully forgiven. And so if someone sins against you, you say to them, why should I not forgive you? I have been forgiven of much, much more. And so the awareness of forgiveness leads to joy, and joy will lead to love for others. See, if you have a judgmental heart, if you have a quick to condemn others, it is because you do not understand your sin and the forgiveness in which God has given you. The gospel will not only create a love for you towards God, the first commandment, it will also compel you to keep the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. But it doesn't stop there. It continues to transform you. It gives you courage. I say the gospel will give you power. Because this woman clearly doesn't care what anyone thinks about her. Right? She is humiliating herself in front of everyone and doesn't care as long as she's with Jesus. I mean, can you imagine the awkwardness to be in that room? A prostitute with a bunch of religious men and everybody knows your life. And then, by the way, you start to make a scene. You start to cry. Don't you want to run out of there? Escape? Get out of there as quickly as you can? How many of us, by the way, would identify with that? How many of us uh, are willing to identify with Jesus Christ in the face of public rejection? Well, this woman does. She has so much power. You see, this Simon is a slave to his own righteousness. He is a slave to his own moral standards. But she has the power. She doesn't care what anyone thinks. She only cares what Jesus thinks. She even lets her hair down. Now, I mentioned that's scandalous. But she doesn't care. It's, it's scandalous because it, it meant vulnerability. To let your hair down meant openness, right? We even have that, that, it's true today, isn't it, in some degree? Right, you watch a movie, and a woman lets down her hair, right? And shakes her head. Yeah, we know what that means, don't we? Right? Especially if there's a man in the house. Or, or even if she comes home and she, she kicks off her shoes and she sits on the couch, and what does she do? She lets her hair down. That means she's, it's, you know, she's, she's done pretending. She's, she's open. She's, it means she's vulnerable, right? And it usually means there's a monster behind the door, right? And she's, you know, she, there's this openness. This is vulnerability. And, and this is what we see here. It's a surrender. I don't care. I don't care what anybody thinks. As long as I have Jesus. You know how much power that is? You see, Tim Keller's right, I think, when he says, by giving up power to Jesus, we gain power. We gain courage. By surrendering to Jesus, she will never surrender to another person's opinion of her again. You can have power through the gospel. But that's not all. You want certainty? Experience certainty. Look in verse 50. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Faith has saved you. Past tense. Not if you keep it up, you may be saved. Certainly not if you follow my message and do what I say, you might be saved. 
which is Simon religion is never past tense. It is always, I hope I've done enough. I hope I've done enough. I hope I've been a good enough person. The Christian religion, this woman's religion is the debt is paid. You've been accepted. I love you. You are saved now and forever. There is no doubt in Christianity. There is no questioning. There is total certainty. Fifth, you can enjoy freedom. The gospel frees us. Now note verse 37. I mentioned already that she has taken this alabaster flask of ointment. This will be a very small jar of perfume with a very skinny neck and a very tiny opening at the top. In fact, the, the, the opening was so small that you could not pour the perfume out. All that the, the jar would release would be the aroma of the perfume. Now, you understand that, that, that women would like these. In fact, they would carry them, they would tie them around their neck. They lived in a day, of course, without air conditioning, right? And without deodorant, right? You understand? And in a hot climate, right? She was stinky. Everyone was stinky. But some women, if you could afford it, you would walk around in a cloud of fragrance when everyone else stank, right? This beautiful smell. So women would wear these, but for a prostitute, well, that was a tool of your trade. It is critical for her to make herself alluring, to make herself attractive. And what does she do? She pours out the perfume on Jesus' feet. Now, the only way to get the perfume out of the flask is to break the neck. You have to break the jar and to pour the perfume on his feet. But once you do that, of course, it's useless, isn't it? You see what she's doing? It's not so much the cost of the perfume, though it would be extravagant. What she's, she's... She's pouring out what she had always depended upon. I've always depended upon my desirability. I've always depended upon my beauty. I've always depended upon the fact that I'm alluring, and now I'm just giving it away because I now depend upon you, Jesus. Totally on you. I give you everything. I pour myself out for you. I have a new master, one who liberates me. In fact, sometimes we sing about this very event, don't we? Take my love, my Lord, I pour at your feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Sixth, you may embrace purpose through the gospel. The gospel will give you purpose for life. And so we leave this story and pick up just these first three verses in chapter 8. So soon afterwards, he went through the city and the villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So we get a very little snapshot of Jesus' ministry, kind of a summary. He's going from town to town, preaching and healing, right? He's come to bring the kingdom of God, show us what it's going to be like one day to live in the kingdom of God. And whether no sickness, no more brokenness, just forgiveness, and he's come. And we notice he's not going alone. He has, of course, his 12 disciples with him, as we see that in verse 1, the 12 apostles. But we also notice that he has some women with him which are the focus of this passage, aren't they? The disciples are not even named, but the women are. That's interesting to me. Um, in fact, I've mentioned to you before that Luke will mention 13 women in his Gospels, in his Gospel that no other uh, Gospel writer will mention. He is very much focused on Jesus' ministry to women. In fact, I think it was Kent Hughes who said about the Gospel of Luke, He introduced us to barren old Elizabeth who trusted God for the gift of a son. He gave us the widow gave us a window into the soul of Mary who sang Jesus his lullabies. He showed us salvation through the eyes of Anna who waited for Christ in the temple. He documented the miracles that Jesus performed for Peter's mother-in-law and the widow of Nain. He poured perfume on the pages of his gospel by introducing the sinful woman at the Pharisee's house. And so it is therefore no surprise that Luke introduces us to three more women. Mary Magdalene, from whom Jesus liberated seven demons out of her. She would, of course, be at the crucifixion of Christ and again and his resurrection. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, who was a high-ranking official in Herod's palace, showing us that the message of Christ had even reached the palace, perhaps from John the Baptist, who was imprisoned by Herod. And then we have a third woman, Susanna, who we know nothing about. It's the only place in which she is mentioned in the Bible. But I just want you to note the women that were ministering to Christ. In fact, it is the women who stick by Jesus. All the men 
will desert him. They will all run from him. No woman ever speaks against Jesus. No woman has a role in his death. He's anointed by women for burial. Women are the last at his grave and the first at his resurrection. Women minister to his needs, bewail his death, and even a pagan woman intercedes to her husband for his life. And here in verse 3, we see women playing a major role in his ministry. Verse 3 tells us they provided for them, Jesus and his apostles, out of their means. See, they've been forgiven by Jesus, and now they enter into a relationship with Jesus, and they immediately want to use their resources to support them. And this is important because Jesus had no resources. He had nothing of his own. And so they said, Jesus, we, we want to follow you. We, we want to serve you. We want to help you. And they are doing so in great and amazing detail. This is an, pretty, an incredible woman's ministry that we see here in the Bible. Right? And, and by the way, Jesus loved women and he taught women. And it would be unheard of in his day. We don't know of any other rabbi who would take uh, women for his disciples. Right? Theology was for men. Not for women in that day. But what Jesus wanted to do was more than save women. He wanted to disciple women. He wanted to raise them up in their understanding of who he is. And so he welcomed them. And they are clearly impacted by him as they serve him. They have ministry. And we all have ministry through the gospel. But I appreciate what Luke has highlighted for us. These women who are so faithful to him. By the way, praise the Lord that God has blessed Hamilton Baptist Church with many wonderful mothers and sisters in Christ who are great examples to us all. Praise God for that great resource, that great gift of you ladies who follow Jesus. And praise God that he is powerful to deliver from demons and from the courts of kings and from sinful lives. Not simply that we might be spectators from a distance, but that we might be contributors to the ministry which he continues even this day because he forgives. Because he forgives. Of course, that raises the question, doesn't it, as we end this morning. How is it that he forgives? How is he able to do this? In fact, he announces this forgiveness, and it immediately raises that question. You see that in verse 49? Then those who are at table with him begin to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? Who is this guy? And they keep asking this question. How does he keep doing this? How does he keep saying, I forgive your sin? Because no one has the right to forgive sins but God alone which is right. But Jesus is God. And therefore, He is able to forgive sins. By the way, no other religion on the face of this earth has a founder that shows up and says, I'm God, your sins are forgiven. They all say, I'm not God, but I'll know you, I'll show you how to pay Him back. I'll show you how to pay off your debt. I'll show you what to do in order to be made right with God. Here's the list. Here are the things. Here are the rituals. Let's hope it's enough at the end. Jesus shows up entirely different and says, I'm God, your forgiveness. Go enjoy your new life. Right? He comes to give forgiveness, to pay our debt. And that's incredibly important. Though we don't see in this text, we need to understand that if there's a debt, someone has to pay it. It has to be paid. Right? If you owe someone a thousand dollars and they forgive you of the debt, well, the person that gave it to you is paying. The one who deserves it is paying. Which is exactly what Jesus will do. The creditor in this story pays the debt. And Jesus will do it on the cross. That's why he dies. To cancel our debt. Colossians 2 says, by counseling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All those statements of sin you would get in the mail, Jesus put in the palm of his hand and they drove a stake through it, a a nail through it as he was pinned to a cross, paying your debt. It is why he declared at the end of his life, dying there as your substitute, to tell us that. Paid in full. It's done. There is nothing left to pay. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Can you just, just for a moment, just imagine what it would be like if a holy God pardoned all your sin, every single thing you have ever done wrong or ever will do wrong, not by closing his eyes to it, not by pretending you didn't do anything wrong, but with eyes wide open, he puts it all upon his son and places him on a cross and pours out his wrath upon Jesus so that he might forgive you. Is there any greater thought? It's exactly what he has done. 
And he invites you even now. He invites you to have that debt paid. The Bible says if you confess through their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, you do it not by following a message. It's not about the message. It's about faith in the messenger. Note verse 50 as we end this morning. And he said to the woman, "What is it? your faith has saved you. Not, not, not your perfume has saved you. Not your tears have saved you. Certainly not your works have saved you. Not your good life. Not your moral keeping. Not your religious duty has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Faith in what? In Jesus. In the one she has come to. Look to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Acknowledge your sin to Jesus. And He will call out to you. Your faith has saved you. Perhaps you're like Simon today and you just think it's just about the message. I would tell you simply what Jesus told him. Do you see this woman? Do you see what I've done in her life? That is available to you. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, do you love like her? Do you have courage like her? Do you have assurance like her? In order to do so, you must remember your debt and rejoice in your forgiveness as you think about the cross of Christ that secured it. That you too might sing. Take my love, my Lord, I pour. At your feet, it's treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Our Father, we're thankful for your word this morning. We're thankful for the work of Christ that we are reminded of this morning. We're thankful that our debt has been paid no matter what we have done or who we are. If we trust in Christ, we are forgiven. I trust, my God, there is one here, and perhaps more, that for some reason that's beyond me refuses to come to Jesus. Will you help them even now by the power of your Spirit to see the beauty of the gospel, to see the wonder of forgiveness that is offered freely to them, that they might come, they might run to Christ and place their faith in Him. We do that even now. And for my brothers and sisters here, God, we need, we need to be awakened, don't we? Father, we need. We don't love you like you deserve. And so rather than trying to conjure it up, rather than beating ourselves down once again and calling us to do our job, can we not just rejoice looking at the cross of Christ and the blood that was shed and the body that was broken that our debt has been paid? That's all of it forever. And will you not take that truth and conjure within us a hatred for sin and a love for the God who has conquered it? Namely, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.